we put them in those situations so they can understand very quickly that you can't do it on your own. It is a it is about the team and it's about the team effort. And so it's about helping others around you to perform well. And in the end, that elevates performance of the team. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. We are on quite a roll with female fighter pods visiting the forge. Today, Colonel Kim Casey Campbell visits us. She served in the Air Force for 24 years as a fighter pilot and senior military leader. Recently retired, Kim is now a keynote speaker, sharing a life-changing story about a combat experience over Baghdad in 2003. We have fun talking with Kim about our old friend Fear, the importance of courage and perseverance, leadership, trust, and how to be assertive. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation in the fighter pilot ready room. Thank you, Kim, for sharing some time with our listeners today. Let's just jump right into this. Uh, I think when we hear the call sign KC and your name is Kim Campbell, that we can assume, or maybe we're going to think, the call sign is just the initials of your name. But what does your call sign really mean? And how did you get that name? question. <laughs> my uh, my call sign is actually Killer Chick, which is rather <laughs> long. And so we've shortened that to KC, which also happens to be my initials. Um, the rules for getting call signs are always a little bit fun. Um, you see fighter pilots have this rule that things only have to be 10% truth. And so on the night when you get your call sign, there's lots of stories shared about you. Um, and uh, you're not actually not in the room. So I wasn't there to hear all the stories, but when you come back into the room, uh, they give you your call sign. And then once you fly with that call sign, it's yours for life. Uh, once you fly with it in combat. And so uh, my call sign was given to me very early on as killer chick. And it has stayed that way since I deployed very quickly in my uh, career as an A-10 pilot. Are you you got to tell us more. It's, is there a story behind <laughs> what, what, what killer? I think she's killer. avoiding well, can, it on purpose, Ron. I, I can tell you what they told me, but I wasn't actually there. I mean, it, uh, I'll give right, you the short, right. ver, the short version is that uh, I went out on a mission and an air to air ride, which is not something we normally do in the A-10, but it's essentially a dogfight, think Top Gun air to air type style mission, uh, not our bread and butter in the A-10, but something that we have to do in training. And I managed to, uh, simulated kill my instructor several times and so that's the short short version uh but for that i was given the call sign killer chick that's what i was looking for wow i was also the only female in the fighter squadron and it was an a10 squadron so it's all very fitting oh we have so many things to talk to you about and i i do want to say for our listeners that don't know um congratulations to you uh it is it's like a bittersweet when you leave the Air Force, right? But congratulations for uh, serving well above the time that the Air Force asks of you. 24 years. Retirement, you you told us, just happened uh, about a month ago on August 1st. So congratulations there. But let's go back 24 years in the past and even longer. Did you always want to be a pilot? Did you know growing up as a young girl like that this is something that you wanted to do? I decided in the fifth grade that this is what I wanted to do. So in 1986, 
um, when the space shuttle Challenger accident happened, for whatever reason, something connected um, for me with that. I realized the astronauts died doing something they believed in, something that was more important than themselves. And I, I don't know, from that moment on, I decided that that was my goal. I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. I was going to be a fighter pilot. I was ideally go into becoming an astronaut. Little did I know that women couldn't actually fly fighters at the time. Um, it just wasn't something that was going to hold me back. But I decided in fifth grade, and from then on out, that was my goal. That was what I went after. That was what I really devoted my entire life to. Maybe, maybe we have a little insight into your personality, because when we see something like the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster, most people are going to say, I don't want to have any part of that. Uh, you know, that was a disaster. A lot of people died. And, and you saw that as your catalyst to say, I want to do something like that. So that I think that's not normal. And so let's 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 stay with the Air Force Academy. I, I read one of your interviews where you initially did not get into the Air Force Academy, which is actually pretty normal. Uh, but I love what happened after you were turned down. Tell us how you finally did get into the Air Force Academy. Yeah, so I got a rejection letter from the academy, essentially saying, you know, thanks, you're qualified, but there's a lot of people qualified and, you know, try again next year. And uh, I was devastated. I mean, that was everything that I had wanted. I had worked so hard for it. And so thankfully, I had some very supportive people there backing me up. My liaison officer for the Air Force Academy uh, told me not to not to quit, not to give up. And suggested that I write letters to the Academy every week. And uh, I thought it was a little crazy at first, but then I thought, you know what, this might actually work. If I just let the Academy know that I'm still interested, you know, that I still wanted a spot. And so I sent the Academy a letter a week and said, you know, whatever I had done that week to improve, whether it was A on a test, 10 more push-ups, you name it, I just wrote them in a letter hey, don't forget about me. You know, I'm still interested. If someone turns down their appointment, I'm happy to fill. And so I did that for almost two months and had made the decision that I was going to show up to the academy on the day where everybody gets off the bus for basic training. And just in case someone decided not to get off the bus, that they decided that they weren't going to, you know, step up and, and, uh, and go to the academy, that I would be there and ready. So thankfully, it didn't come down to that. I got an acceptance letter a few weeks before before that. But uh, yeah, I wrote the Academy letters every week just saying, hey, don't forget about me. I'm still interested. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not ready to give in quite yet. What a, what a great story of perseverance. And, and, you know, I always like to say that, imagine if you would have just gave up with that first letter, your whole life would have been different. And so I think it's a good, I'd say it's a good lesson for young people, but I think it's a good lesson for us all. If that's what you really want, you know, I always like to say whatever it takes. And I have to ask him, because when you were doing that, uh, how old were you back then? When you were? 17, 18. Seven, oh, my gosh. So question for you, because uh, part, some of the work Ron and I do is uh, with young students. They're usually, you know, 20, 19, 20, 21. And in my, with my students, uh, what they're saying right now is an overwhelming pain for them is what am I going to do when I graduate next early next year? 
what am I going to do with my life? Um, how I'm so afraid I'm not going to get that job. I'm not going to please my parents. I'm not going to be accepted wherever I'm going. What words of advice after such a long career that started with perseverance, what advice do you have for these younger people? I hear you say all those things and I feel like, gosh, that's so much pressure to put on yourself. You know, I just looking back, I mean, I did the same thing. I put so much pressure on myself to get it right the first time to not make mistakes, you know, and the truth is like, we are going to make mistakes. We're going to fail. We're going to face rejection. You know, those, there are going to be things that go wrong in our life. And so the important thing is how you respond in those moments, right? It's get used to it. Now, those things are going to happen really the, the key thing is that you can get back up again and try again. And, you know, I can think of so many times in my life where that happened, where what I wanted didn't play out exactly as I had planned. And so I think those things as painful as they are actually make us stronger in the long run. It's really hard in that moment when you're facing the rejection to think about it that way. But I look back at those moments and they, those moments have really made me the person that I am today. So I guess I would say, don't put so much pressure on yourself, you know, when it happens, because it will, you know, it's about how you respond in that moment. It's, it's ironic to me, and maybe it feels surreal to you as well. The Air Force Academy that we just talked about that you had to kind of fight your way into, you ended up being the director of character and leadership. And I've gone to that, that symposium every year, which is wonderful. Uh, it's always fun to be on the, on the campus and, and around the cadets. Do you feel like, is, is that a, kind of a strange thing that you, it's almost like you completed, you know, this full circle of, I had to fight my way in and now I'm teaching the cadets about character and leadership. Yeah. I, I mean, I really felt like my, my final assignment at the Air Force Academy was as the director for the Center for Character and Leadership Development. And I did feel like it came full circle for me. It was such an incredible opportunity for me to give back and to share some of my stories. I mean, when I was at the Academy, because I, I think because I faced that rejection and I worked so hard to get in, I was so committed to doing well while I was there. I was going to make the most of it. And I held the position of cadet wing commander in charge of all 4,000 cadets. I graduated number one overall in the military order of merit. And I don't know if it was just like I had something to prove to the academy. Like, hey, I know you rejected me initially, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick ass, right? I'm going to go in there right. and I'm going to do the best I can. Um, and so to come back and, and to have the opportunity to teach cadets and mentor and interact with them, to kind of share those stories of like, hey, it's not always going to go well. You know, you're going to face these really hard things in your life and you have to be able to overcome. You have to prepare yourself for those moments. And so it was an ideal job. It, it was one I was not supposed to have. I was going to retire a year prior COVID happened. They asked me to stay on for an extra year. And um, I couldn't have asked for a better job. I couldn't have asked for a better team and a way to, to close out my career, to be back at the academy and really mentoring and preparing the next generation. Can you tell us a little bit about what that, that role was like? I mean, from someone that's come from uh, quite a career and a hundred or so missions in combat, you're now the director of character and leadership for the upcoming uh, group of fighter pilots. What was that role like? And kind of just give us like uh, uh, what you did. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that is really um unique about kind of the position where I came into is having the ability to take what 
the cadets are looking at right now at the academy and to to broaden that out to those things that you might face in the future in your role as officers in the Air Force or Space Force. So for me, it was all about how what they're learning now applies to the future and what they might do. And so how do you become that leader of character, which was our mission? And so for us, that was all about teaching them how to live honorably, lift others, and elevate performance. Uh, and those key things were critical to helping them understand how to be leaders of character in the Air Force and Space Force. And so I really tried personally to take some of my own experiences and share that with them. So it's not just what about your, what you're reading about in a book or hearing in a classroom, you're knowing how those things happen in the operational experience as well. We're on the same page as far as lifting others. I feel like that a message that's really important to me, but I can tell you when I was that age, that would have went right past me. I, I felt like I was a little bit of a self young man where I just, in the sense that I just wanted to put my head down and, and do my thing. And I wasn't really here to help anybody else up the mountain. Do you think, I mean, do you, th- was that a, is that a hard message for the cadets or young people in general? Well, and because we also, it it tends to be something that sometimes comes later in life because you've done your career, you've made your mark, and now you want to help others. And I I guess like Ron's saying, when you're young, you're trying to make your own mark. Yeah. And that's why we focus on the live honorably piece first, right? We're trying to get them to understand how they themselves can uphold values. But you really have to take it a step further. And it's important for them because the second they graduate, they're lieutenants. They're going to be in charge and responsible for young men and women in training, deployed in combat. And so we are asking a lot of them. The important thing about lifting others is that, you know, and and we try to teach this at the academy as well. I mean, it's not about you. It's about the team. And you really can't achieve success without the, the team and the, and the difficult challenges that you face at the academy. And so we put them in those situations so they can understand very quickly that you can't do it on your own. It is, a, it is about the team and it's about the team effort. And so it's about helping others around you to perform well. And in the end, that elevates performance of the team. It's a hard concept. We don't get it right, but we give them an opportunity to practice. Totally. Yeah, I and- think, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, as I'm listening to you and having been out of the Air Force for 12 years now myself, this is something that the corporate world needs, right? Especially now, especially now as we're, you know, coming to the two-year mark of dealing with some really rough times uh, with uh, the pandemic. So I know you do keynote speaking. Do you go into where where is, where is your uh, perfect... Uh, setting for keynotes and what are you usually talking about when you go in because I'm sure you have a lot to share. I have talked to a lot of different organizations. I would say um, everyone from kind of the financial sector um, and financial companies to companies that make boilers. So we're talking across the board business and corporate audiences and I really I try to share a personal message. I want to talk about my experiences, but really the lessons and the message that goes with it. Um, And so I talk about leading with courage and having the courage to fail. I talk about fighter pilot mindset and what that means um, and how that can help you and perform and succeed um, in the corporate world as well. And so I think one of the things that why I love the speaking is that I feel like all these 
lessons. Yes, the stories are different, right? My experiences are different, but the stories, the messages connect. You know, this idea of having courage and working as a team, those are common across military and business. And so I really enjoy that opportunity to connect with people, to learn about different organizations and where I can come in and help. You know, where a lot of times I will listen to a problem that they are having in their organization. And then I have the opportunity to go, well, how about a different perspective? Because I am coming in with a different viewpoint and a different perspective. And so that's been, it's been really fun for me. I really enjoy it. And I love the feedback. I love when people can come up to me afterwards and say that one thing you said that made a difference. Um, and so that, that's why I love it. Um, I'm really enjoying it and I, I'm looking forward to doing more of it. Well, you, you brought out the word courage. So I have to go to a story that you've probably told, I don't know, hundreds of times at this <laughs> point. But for our listeners that have never heard it, uh, I think it, it would, we, we need to go there. And so let's talk about uh, your, your time in 2003 over Baghdad flying your A-10 in combat. What happened? And, and tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, it's a long time ago, but it, sometimes it feels like yesterday. You know, it was 18 years, and um, uh, I can still I can still see it all very vividly because for me it was such a life changing, life altering moment. And this was April 2003, so at this point, um, Operation Iraqi Freedom had been underway for about three weeks. Uh, we had pushed all the way to Baghdad at this point, and so our troops on the ground were taking fairly significant fire needing constant support. And so they designed these stacks around Baghdad where we would take off from Kuwait, we'd go fly up to Baghdad and then just wait in these stacks to hold. And on April 7th, 2003, I was waiting in the stack with my flight lead. Um, unfortunately, the weather was terrible. So we didn't actually think we were gonna be able to do anything that day to provide support. But we got a call for troops in contact saying our troops on the ground were taking fire and they needed immediate assistance. And so we did what any A-10 pilot would do and headed to the target as quickly as we could. Uh, we got right over the target area and uh, we couldn't see the ground below. And so my flight lead just said, all right, we're going to find a hole in the clouds and then we'll just dive down through. And so he found a hole in the clouds and disappeared. And then it was my turn. And as soon as I got down below the weather, I could just... I could see this firefight happening. I mean, I could see tracers and smoke going back and forth the Tigris River, across the Tigris River. And as I'm watching this firefight, kind of in this moment of, I don't know, shock, because it was so surreal to actually see it because we were so low below the clouds, I suddenly caught, just out of the corner of my eye, these puffs of gray and white smoke. And I realized not only is there a firefight, the enemy is shooting up at us too. And so we know we have to get in very quickly. We make decide we're going to do just a couple of passes and kind of reassess things so that we can climb up and get our energy back. And on my last rocket pass, roll in, everything's normal, hit, our, hit my weapons release button and seven rockets come down on the enemy location. And then I pull away from the ground to get away from the threat, trying to climb to get my energy back when I just feel this loud explosion at the back of the airplane. And I knew immediately I was hit. There was no doubt in my mind. The jet nosed over and I could see Baghdad below me and uh, kind of looked down at my ejection handles thinking that is the last thing I want to do right now is eject where we were just engaging with the enemy. 
And so I know I have to make every second count and quickly try to analyze what's going on in the cockpit. I've got master caution light flashing. My caution panel is lit up like a Christmas tree. And I look up at the top and the, the hydraulic lights and the hydraulic reservoir lights are all four of them are on. I look up above that, the hydraulic gauges are at zero. And so at this point, I pull back on the control stick and nothing. I mean, the airplane is not responding to any of my control inputs. And so I have two options at this point. One is those ejection handles, which I don't want to use. And the other is a backup system in the A-10 um, called manual reversion. And so I flip the switch and the jet slowly starts to climb out and away from Baghdad. And that's kind of the first moment, this first thought of, all right, I, I might make it out of this alive. Um, somewhere along the way, I tell my flight lead that I had been hit and, uh, and he starts being very directive with me exactly why we fly with a wingman to have that mutual support. And uh, he's trying to get me to move over to the friendly, above the friendly, so that if I have to eject, at least maybe I'll fly or float down in a parachute down to their location telling me to put out more chaff and flare so that it, because the enemy is still shooting at us so that ideally I don't get hit again. But he was incredibly important in terms of helping me get out of there safely. And then we finally get above the weather and uh, making our way out of Baghdad. And I've got an hour to fly this airplane back to our home base and make a decision of, I want to try to land the airplane back at our home base or just get back to friendly territory and eject. I will tell you that's probably the toughest decision I've ever made in my life because I feel a little bit like if I make the wrong decision, I could die trying. I also feel very confident in the decision and uh, I decided that I was going to land the airplane and um, flew an hour back to base, getting a feel for how the airplane was flying. Really just trying to focus on the task at hand because it was, I will say, mentally exhausting, flying it back and physically exhausting and eventually made it back into friendly territory and then just focused on the landing, which uh, was, I will say, the best landing that I have ever done <laughs> because uh, it was safe. It was on the ground, uh, but it was a huge relief to be back on the ground. And relief is probably the biggest understatement that it was a, a huge relief to be back on the ground. Were you scared? Yes, I can answer that now. Uh, at the time, I always said, I didn't have time to be scared. No, I wasn't scared. I didn't think about it. And then I went back and listened to the video or the audio recording in the airplane. And I can hear the fear in my voice when it happened. And yeah, I was absolutely scared. Um, I couldn't admit it then. I think it's taken me years to admit it, that I was scared in that moment. Um, but I'm confident that it's what you do when you are scared that matters. And that you actually, you know, you can't have courage without fear. And so being afraid is not the big deal, even though we always think it is. We put so much pressure on ourselves to go, no, I wasn't afraid. I mean, I'm a fighter pilot, right? I'm supposed to be invincible. Um, but the truth is, you know, I was scared. It was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life. And I'm so glad that you said that. I, I think that so many people try to say exactly what you're saying. No, I, you know, I, I had no fear. And, and fears, you know, it's, it can be good for us. So I yeah. love that. No matter the amount of training, which I know you've trained for those scenarios. I, I can't even imagine how many hours. Um, and that's probably what kicked in at that moment and um, blocked, or at least on the surface, blocked out some of the fear, I'm guessing. 
Yeah. My, I think that that training helps us prepare to face the fear, to respond right. in the face of fear. That's what's key, that, tra- that training, that preparation. 100%. And then my question is, how easy was it to get back in the cockpit and fly again the next time? <laughs> it was really easy only because um, I got launched on combat search and rescue alert. Okay. And so I was, um, it was supposed to be what we would normally have a down day where we sit alert and normally you don't get launched because people don't get shot down. But on April 8th, uh, an A-10 pilot was shot down in Baghdad. And so I didn't have time to think about it. I mean, we just, as soon as we heard the alarm sound, we raced out to the jets, we got our gear on, hopped in the jets and, and launched. And we just trying to build the picture. Where is the pilot? What shot him down? Where are the closest helicopters? All of those things. So I didn't have time to think about it. I mean, I, I didn't have time to think about I, that I was going right back to Baghdad, you know, right where I had escaped my own shoot down because the guys were there for me the day before, right? The Sandy pilots, the combat search and rescue pilots were there for me. They were going to go get me. And so I didn't, I didn't even think about it. I mean, I was going to do the exact same thing for them. And so it was probably the best way to get back in the airplane because I didn't have time to think about it. You know, I just, just did what all my other brothers in the A-10 would do for me. Um, so that, yeah, the next day, and it was easier because of the situation. Um, it was for me, the best way to get back in the airplane. I mean, there was still a war going on. I flew several, I don't know, several more missions after this, because this was in April and we stayed until July of 2003. All three of us, I think on this, this podcast are deeply interested in leadership. And one of the things, uh, as I was doing research about this incident was, you talking about your flight lead, uh, and you, it was almost like you wanted him, you maybe secretly wanted him to make the decision of what to do. Should I eject or should I launch? <laughs> and, and I think that's normal. And I think a lot of times in a pressure situation, we, it's almost like we want somebody to take over, but he didn't. He trusted you and he empowered you to make the decision on your own. Do you think that's a good lesson for even the civilian world when we're leading others? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's that part of me that was just like, well, this is, you know, this would be a lot easier if he just made the decision for me. But he didn't because he had confidence in me. I mean, he had trust and confidence in me that I, because I had come to the cockpit prepared, right? I had done the training, I'd done the preparation. By empowering me, he showed me that he had confidence in me and that gave me more confidence in myself that I could make this decision. And so I think, yes, I think it, absolutely applies. I mean, I want to empower my young team members to make their own decisions, to take their own actions. But I also trust that they are coming in prepared, that they've done their homework, Mm. that they've done the research, that they've studied. And then I'm going to trust them to make their own decisions. And I'm going to empower them to make their own decisions. And ideally, that gives them confidence in themselves as well. Um, it doesn't mean, you know, we're not going to have times where we make the wrong decision or the wrong choice. And, you know, that that is going to happen. But I think it is absolutely critical that as leaders, we empower our team members to make decisions, to execute, that we have trust in them. How do you mentor young women coming up into the Air Force or just even around you in general? How do you mentor them to find the or to not find, but to cut the path for themselves the way that you have? I go back to some advice that was given to me 
by um, my commissioning officer. So the person that get, reads me the oath of office when I become a lieutenant. And she told me, choose the path that is right for you. Only you can choose that path. And when she told me that as a second lieutenant, I was like, oh, that's nice advice, you know, and, but I kept it all these years. And over time, I started to realize what that meant because you get a lot of advice throughout your career. People get a lot of advice, but really only you can choose the path that's right for you. And part of that means that don't do things because other people want you to do them. Do something because you want to, because you think it's the right path. You know, we put pressure on ourselves because of society, because of parents, spouses, you name it. But in the end, it really comes down to what, what are your priorities? What's important to you? Then go after it, right? Then go after that path. But choose, figure out what your priorities are and choose your own path. And when people criticize or critique the path that you've chosen, as long as you're confident in the path, then you should feel confident in that decision. My husband and I got a lot of advice over the course of our career um, that we would have to choose someone's career. So we, somebody would have to get out. We both couldn't stay in the Air Force and continue on. And we kind of nodded and said, thanks. And, and then said, you know, we're gonna do, we're gonna choose our own path. We're gonna stay in and keep doing this as long as, you know, as long as we're enjoying it and feeling like we're making a difference. Um, but we got a lot of criticism along the way that we weren't choosing the right path, that maybe it wasn't so good for our career, but it was, it was right for us. Uh, and so I think that's one of the things that's really important. So you just, you have to know in your heart what's right for you. What is your husband or what did your husband do in the military? Uh, he was also an A-10 pilot. So we, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. So we spent, <laughs> we spent 25 ask what that's years. Like, yeah. yeah. Say that again. We spent 20, he spent 25 years in, uh, and for me, 24, but all of it flying A-10s uh, and leading and commanding. Did he stay in one year longer just to, I don't know. <laughs> no, he was, that two year, <laughs> he was two years older than me. So he all actually right. uh, stayed in one year less. <laughs> than I did. Uh, all right. Let, let's go. Let's, let's ask this question. Uh, what was it like? And, and I think it probably is a, a relevant question for your husband as well, but what's it like to be a fighter pilot mom? How do you, how do you oh. balance all that? You know, I think, um, Balance is a tough word to use, I think. And for me, what I, it took me a while to get there. Um, but I figured out that I couldn't balance 50-50 every day. Um, that if I tried to be this perfect mom, wife, leader, spouse, like parallel 50-50 every day, I failed. I mean, I just wasn't good at it. And I put a lot of pressure on myself to try to meet that balance every day. And so what I decided was it was more of a long-term view. You know, some days I might have to stay at work late because somebody or something needs my attention. Well, maybe a couple of days later, I'm going to go off work early and try to go on a field trip with my son. So it was really just this long-term view and, and not putting so much pressure on myself to to be perfect and all of those things. Cause I, it was not achievable. Um, and so I think that's the way I tried to look at it. Trying to balance all of those things was difficult. Um, and being a fighter pilot, being a commander and leader of, of a large team and being a mom all at the same time was, was challenging. It was hard. And, um, 
I think, you know, for me, you know, I, it was just setting priorities and figuring out where on that day I needed to spend my time and then giving myself a little bit of grace in terms of the long-term view. What do your kids think? Uh, First of all, how old are they? How old are they? They are now uh, eight and 13. Okay. And so they were very, you know, obviously we, we had kids as fighter pilots and um, <laughs> they actually, we would take them to air shows and they would be more in- interested in the fire trucks than the air, sh- than the air show going on overhead. And What's wrong with those kids? It, yeah, it wasn't until um, they got a little bit older and I was able to take them out and show them the A-10. They got to climb up and sit in it. And then I uh, also got them to fly in our simulator. And then they were kind of like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like, you you might actually be okay. Uh, and, and then uh, when my son got to be the age where he was on the computer, he said, Mom, I Googled you. And there's this, you flew a mission in Iraq? Wow, and I had not, I hadn't told him. I, I it just wasn't something that had come up, and so that was kind of when he started to realize that there was a whole lot more about our flying than we had we had shared. So, um, I have since shared those experiences with both the kids, and I think they think we're we're almost cool now, you know. But we're sure, still parents, sure, so. you, you got to work at it. You, uh, yeah, you just got to work at it. That's, that's tough to, to get into the cool category. Yeah, really tough. <laughs> that's funny though. I wonder how many parents, I'm not a parent, but I wonder how many parents uh, have their kid come to them and say, Hey, Hey mom, I Googled you. I Googled you <laughs> yeah. and I found out you're actually kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's, let's stay with this little bit because this is uh, a topic that both Tara and I are passionate about. And so you went to the Air Force Academy and I think I saw from my research that when you Went into the Air Force Academy, there was 12% of the student population that was female. Of course, being a fighter pilot in the Air Force, is there's not a lot of women, right? And so you have spent a lifetime of being kind of, you know, sometimes called the other, right? And so any advice for how, how do you navigate that path? If there's other young women out there that want to take a path like that, what would you say to them as far as maybe some advice? Yeah. When I, so like you said, I, when I started the Academy, we were about 12% women, women, uh, today it's up to over 30%. So making progress, fighter pilots were not making such good progress. I mean, I was, uh, I think one of 43 female fighter pilots in the entire air force. When I walked into my fighter squadron on day one, you know, less than 1%. And, um, I put a lot of pressure on myself, um, because I didn't want to, these are my words, not ruin it for all the women that followed me. That's a lot of pressure. And that was pressure that I put on myself. Um, I didn't want to make mistakes. I didn't want to fail. You know, that's close to impossible. Um, But that's kind of the pressure that I put on myself. What I figured out once I got in the fighter squadron was truly the guys in my squadron, all they cared about was I was credible in the airplane. And so my advice is that, is go be credible in whatever you do. You know, go do the work, study, work hard, have a good attitude, but be credible in what you do. Because I was able to prove myself in the airplane and I was also able to prove myself in combat in a really difficult situation. And after that, it was, it didn't matter. I mean, sure, the media liked to refer to me as a female fighter pilot, um, but to the guys in my squadron, I was just a fighter pilot. You know, I was, I was part of the team. And so I think being credible 
and proving myself early on in my career is really what mattered. It's what, you know, it mattered the most. Um, you know, I, I got it. It was a bit of an anomaly. Um, and I understood that, but at the same time, other than sounding different on the radio, I mean, I, I could do the same job that, that they could. Um, and so I think go be credible in what you do, do the work. You have to put in the work, you have to put in the effort, um, and then have a good attitude to go with it. And I think the Air Force, I don't know about the other services. Um, I would assume it's very similar, if not the same, but I know for the Air Force, it's a very unique position um, with the male-female dynamic in the sense of people always ask me, what was what was it like being a female leader in the Air Force? Did you get support from men? Was it awkward? Was it easy to be assertive? And very similar to what you're saying, my answer is always, never have I been in a uh, an organization in my life where I felt that we were all equals. We're all wearing the same uniform. We're all trained the same way. We're all expected to do the same things. Um, and so the male-female dynamic doesn't show up quite the same way as it, it's not as large as it shows up in the civilian world. And so my question to you is because Ron and I get hit with this from young women um, and not even just young women, uh, but women that are moving up the uh, in their organization into leadership positions. And they say, coach us on how do we be more assertive, but also fit in and be assertive in the right way? How do we do that in the civilian world in, an, in our organization? And I'm curious, coming from a little bit of a different set up within the Air Force, how would you coach or help young women um, in the civilian world with that? I think, you know, being assertive is important. It is not the only thing. Um, part of it is to be authentic and true to who you are and not try to be somebody else and not try to fit in in a way that changes who you are. Um, I am a huge proponent of vulnerable leadership and being vulnerable. And sometimes that is really hard for women to do, to show that human side uh, of leadership. Um, but at the same time, I can be vulnerable and I can also hold my team accountable. I can hold myself accountable. And so I think it's, you know, you gotta have both sides of the spectrum. I think you know, it, it is about being true to who you are and not trying to be somebody else. Um, and the fact that I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a pilot, I'm a leader, I'm all of those things. And at first I felt really like an internal struggle of letting my team see that, I guess, softer side of me, if you will. Um, and then on my change of command ceremony, so it when you become a commander, the first thing that you do is you have a big formal ceremony. And this is my very first command. So I was responsible for 150 airmen. And at that ceremony, I had in my mind, like all these things that I wanted to be as this new commander setting the example, you know, I'm coming in as this combat proven fighter pilot. And what happens during the ceremony, my three-year-old son decides to leave his seat with my husband and he comes up on stage and sits in my lap <laughs> in the middle of the ceremony. Oh boy. And I was like, oh my, you know, I'm it, all I could think for like the first several minutes was what are my airmen going to think of me? Like here I am supposed to be in charge of 150 people. I can't control my three-year-old son. You know, I, here's this, <laughs> you know, I was just so worried about what they would think. 
And it turns out that like that moment connected me with my airmen in a way that I couldn't have predicted. I mean, they just, it like made me normal. You know, it made me like a human being that didn't have all the answers that could make mistakes. Like it just, it connected me. And so I think it really showed me the power of being true to who you are, being authentic to you and, and, and being vulnerable in leadership, you know, having the courage to show who you are, but as a leader, you have to be able to be assertive, make decisions, make those hard calls, you know, make the tough decisions and hold people accountable, including yourself. Um, so I think it's, it's a, it's not just one thing about being assertive. It's, there's so much more to it than that, I guess I would say. And I think hidden in that message is, and I think you'd agree, Kim, is women out there, you don't try to be a man. You know, I, I get frustrated when I see young women that say, well, I, I got to be forceful like a man. And, I, and I, I, I agree with you. Be authentic to who you are and bring the talents and the, and the strengths that you have. And a lot of times uh, that is many of the things that you just mentioned. You know, women can bring something different to the table and, and don't be afraid to bring that to the table. I think that's that's so important. Contact and reach out to you if they do want to link up with you for some speaking. Yes. If people would like to uh, connect with me, they can uh, find me on LinkedIn and it's okay. Kim Casey Campbell. There are a lot of Kim Campbells out there. So Kim Casey Campbell, they can also find me there on, uh, with that on Twitter, uh, Casey Hogg 987. 987 is the tail number of my aircraft. And then uh, my email, kim.campbell987 at gmail.com. Let's, uh, let's go to our last question. Uh, Kim, if you're, if you're open uh, to sharing, what is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? I would say this is my greatest failure because I, I think when I look back on it, it was probably a turning point for me in how I approached failure. And this was my final check ride, my evaluation ride at pilot training. And this was really everything leading up to this. We have lots of evaluations. They look at how you perform. And then that, dis- that determines your future in terms of what aircraft you will fly in the Air Force. And so I had, I had done well up to this point, And this was my final ride. And um, it was a formation ride. So we fly real close to each other. They evaluate, you know, your position and things like that. And my vo- my visor on my helmet was fogging up. And so I was getting real uncomfortable in the close formation. And so I finally told my evaluator and said, look, I, you know, my visor's fogging up. I, it's not working. And he was like, all right, no big deal. You know, we'll move away, fix your visor and then move back in. And so I moved away. I cleaned the visor out and moved back in. But then I proceeded to just think about how poorly I had flown up to that point. And I was like beating myself up while I'm flying, while I'm supposed to be focusing. And I'm just continuing to beat myself up about, oh, I'm, I'm sure I didn't fly well. I was making mistakes, not even thinking about what I was doing. You know, I was back behind the jet, not out in front of it. And as a result, I did not fly well. Um, in fact, I got several downgrades on that ride. We call them red check marks on the grade sheet. Um, because I had not flown well. And I think most importantly, the lesson was that, you know, I had let something snowball. I had let it get out of control. You know, I had, I was so focused on one mistake that I let the whole ride kind of snowball after that. 
And, uh, you know, I, I got several downgrades. Thankfully, I had done well enough up to that point that I was still able to be competitive for the A-10. But that lesson of, of learning when you make a mistake, acknowledge it, you own that mistake. Yep, I screwed that up. I messed it up. And then you got to move on and then not make the same mistake again. They hurt, they're painful, and nobody wants to fail, especially a fighter pilot. Uh, but I think we can also learn and grow from our mistakes and failures as well. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.